Hey, yo, what's going on? This is Aaron with the Semi-Social Life of a Black Introvert Podcast. Kicking it with my man, Ant, for keeping the towel. Yo, let's go ahead and get a jumping. Peace world, easy world. It's your man, Ant Boogie. Don't worry about the name. Get used to the voice. And it's another episode of Keeping the Towel. Thank you for rocking with me again. I am blessed to have you in the mix with me. It is here. It is here. This day has come. This week has come. This hour has come. And if you are listening to this, that means you are still alive. That means you are still in another opportunity to fight with me. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is my favorite time of the year. The Why I Kept My Towel series Father's Day edition, where I get a chance to sit down and vibe with some dope fathers, where they get a chance to speak to me about their lives and their journey in fatherhood. So this brother... Got at me one time and just said, yo, I want to talk to you about this thing called fatherhood. So, ladies and gentlemen, he is now stepping in the gym with me. He finally came in. He got dressed, got off the plane, got in the gym. And so, here he is, all the way from the Buckeye State of Ohio, Mr. Aaron Whitfield. Aaron, are you in the building, sir? Yo, I am definitely in the building, man. I'm definitely in the building. I'm excited about today to talk about fatherhood and all that it means to me. And I'm sure a lot of fathers out there. So, yeah, I'm definitely excited. Yeah, so my man is here. Mr. Whitfield, this is what I need you to do. I need you to get your hands wrapped. Get your gloves on. Get your mouthpiece in your mouth. Get your headgear on. Come to the ring. Ladies and gentlemen, go ahead and gather around and get a seat because this one's going to be good. It is Aaron Whitfield and Aunt Boogie, and it is official that our sparring session has started. Let's get it. Let's get it. Let's get it. So, Aaron, let's go ahead and put this tape in the tape deck, and let's mm-hmm. rewind this back. To 19 Zigga Zigga And let us know Where did it all start For Mr. Aaron Yo it started in Columbus, Ohio Yo I'm gonna I'm gonna give you all A specific date 1984 In Columbus, Ohio So I'm an 80s baby um, And I grew yes. up in a baby. Yeah I mean we're, we're here We're here You know we're still here And we still look good So uh you know, 80s babies, uh, hip hop era uh, We grew up in an interesting time In America So that all of that sort of shaped me in terms of the man and the father that I am today. So, Columbus, Ohio, 84. Shouts out to the 80s babies. Yeah, we still love y'all. We still here. We definitely still here. And as my man said, we still looking good, of course. Here it is, 84. What's mm-hmm. home like? Mom, dad, siblings. Put us there, bro. Yeah, yeah. So, I grew up in the city, in the uh, north side of Columbus, uh, North Linden, in a, I would say, a somewhat of a mixed neighborhood. We were middle class. Um, I grew up with uh, both parents in the household. I had one brother. Um, We stayed across the street. Uh, There was a Vietnamese family that we were very close to across the street. It was the type of neighborhood where, you know, if you grew up in the 80s and in the 90s, you know this, where you can walk around the neighborhood, but you have to stick together, but you always felt safe in your community. And so, you know, looking back, like we used to take over, we used to go everywhere on our bikes on the north side of Columbus, um, no cell phones, probably about 25 cents in our pockets. We go to the corner store, maybe get some chips, maybe get something, be home in three, four hours, check in, but then leave right back out. Like it felt right, you know, it, it, crab apple fights, you know, we were a little, uh, you know, we didn't have much. We, we threw crab apples, played curveball, basketball, football in the street. You know, it it was a great existence. And that was my foundation. You know, home was where I felt safe and and really I felt protected. I I, I was so ignorant to the world around me. 
Um, but that was almost just due to the safety that I felt with being home with my parents and my brother. Man, Aaron, you just went back to my childhood, like verbatim right there that you just said. The the getting the 25 cent chips, the 25 cent juice. It was so funny what a dollar did for you back in the day. You can get Man. four chips too I too big. I remember I don't know if you ever had if y'all had it out there in Ohio, but you had the 50 cent ICs that was as long as your leg. You got two of those, man. You felt like you was rich. And then like when you have five, oh yeah, you was definitely balling. So <laughs> life was so much it was simple. It yeah. was simple. And in some ways in my, you know, and now that I'm in my late 30s, I crave simplicity almost like that is simplicity and the innocence but it was simple and, and it made sense and my eyes weren't fully open but the more and more I, I i think about that time what a beautiful time to be alive yes you know what yes. a beautiful time yes and and we were in the second golden era of hip-hop i know some of y'all think it's the drakes and and dirks and everything and the babies no 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 no, y'all weren't even close. So, um, shouts out to y'all. But um, anyway, you're in this neighborhood, diverse neighborhood. What was it like in the home with with pops and moms? What was it like with him as the head of the family? You know, it was it was interesting because my father was looked at as the provider, even within the dynamics of my mother and father. Both both worked. Um, but it was clear that my father was the financial provider and my mom was the um, in-house uh, provider. And so, you know, I, those roles were um, I saw those roles up close and personal. My father uh, specifically, a lot of my work ethic, I learned from him in the early years. You know, seeing him wake up and put on his suit, put on his hat, uh, tie the tie specific way, get in the car, go to work early, come back home late. I, I learned how to be dedicated to my occupation from my father. I know my father and, and how he grew up. I would say he grew up poor. Um, he may not describe it as that, but not having the financial means to necessarily have as many opportunities and resources um, as he wished. He put in a lot of work and put a lot of time and investment to make sure that everything that we needed, we had and some. You know, we we had a, a, a beautiful living. My my father made close to six figures. And I, I just throw this out there for for most of my life. And I didn't know it um, because money was not the object for him. Money was it wasn't like go out and go get money, but allow money to provide resources and options for you. So money wasn't always the goal, but the resources and the options, that's what money brings. So I learned a lot of that from him. Yeah. And plus, back in the day, we knew you don't ever ask your parents how much you make because they would give you either two answers, none of your business, or they'll give you a fake number. And you'll be like, that's it? So, Yeah. And, and even, you know, even if I did know, even if I did know, that money was for them. You know, right. it wasn't. It wasn't, hey, let me get $30, let me get $40. What are you going to do to earn? What are you going to do once you earn it? How are you going to invest it? And so by by the time we got through all that, I didn't want the money anymore. So so um, so I don't need that lesson. I just want the money. But but it, but I learned a lot from my father. I can recall, you know, two situations um, where I saw a lot of the humanity of my father. 
Uh, one, you know, being a, an 80s baby growing up in early 90s, too, uh, was when uh, Magic Johnson uh, came out with the HIV uh, announcement and his, you know, retiring from the NBA. And that was that was one of the first times I saw my father emotional because Magic was his man. You know, magic was magic and the world stopped, you know, with our very limited TV channels, you know, but everybody was tuned in that day to watch magic. I believe that was in 91. And I remember seeing that look in my father's eyes like he was hurt. He was hurt. And then in 92, I remember coming inside. I was about eight, eight years old, um, coming inside and, and seeing my father and my mother sitting on the couch and they were watching the Rodney King beating. And and truth be told, yo, that's when my um, that's when my innocence, that's when I lost almost the innocence to the world mm. um, because, you know, mortality came in uh, to the picture. And, and my father, my mother, uh, even at eight, told me what I needed to do in order to get out of a, in order to make it out alive in a police, in a police interaction. And so, you know, these lessons, as I'm in my late thirties, these are some of the lessons I provide my 10 and 12 year old. So it's almost like, you know, reliving um, some of these experiences I had growing up. But as you grew into your teenage years, put us in that time frame, high Man. school and all that good stuff. What was it like then? Who was he? Teen Air was in Springfield, Ohio, a much smaller town. We moved from Columbus from uh, to uh, have better opportunities in a smaller town um, and then to go to a little bit better of a school district. And so Teen Air was in Springfield, Ohio, a town, maybe 70,000, in which there's, you know, if for those who don't know about small towns, there's a black side of town, there's a white side of town. And, and generally they're separated by a bridge and maybe separated by, by train tracks. Um, yeah, by a train track mm-hmm. and a quarter mile. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up on the white side of town um you know in in springfield and it was interesting um because you know we had a we built a house we we were one of the first black first and only black residents in our neighborhood and especially to build a house you know we were like the new negroes on the block like like we were we were the opposite brady bunch and you know to be one of the only black families on the block with the new house it brought eyes it brought attention um i was you know both good and bad but my father and and really my parents always made sure that we stay rooted in who we were you know who 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 are who am i as a as being aaron you know how can i sort of operate how do i move how do i navigate how do i navigate this new existence in this new environment and so um high school was wonderful there's some ups and downs socially and things like that um but i enjoy you know growing up in springfield in the small towns and the in the relationships that i had but that environment taught me a lot about race and class to say the very least as you had to navigate through the dichotomy of this neighborhood of course as you said separate by the road a half mile a tra- train tracks and it's crazy that even in today's time in the 21st century we still have those neighborhoods even as you were navigating through this life as a teenager the role your father still played in your life how poignant was it and what did it do to you in your shaping in your teenage you know it it showed me my father um you know i learned a lot from him through conversation um and i think that's something that he did not have with his father he didn't have a whole lot of conversation. My father's father, my grandfather, was um, was in and out the house more 
more out than in. And so I don't think, I don't believe in, in, and I know my father did not have much conversation with his father. And so I know, I know that my father worked really hard uh, to have conversations with us um, about his experience as a man and what we will experience, um, you know, as, as we grow into our, our man bodies and in our, you know, in our minds expand, our world expands. But I learned so much about my father through observation. You know, he worked a lot. So conversation was cool and we had conversation, but I had to really pick up on the observation on how he moved, you know, in some of the um, some of the small details uh, as far as who he is as a man, because time was limited. And so, you know, I learned I learned I learned how to be a provider, the importance of being a provider. I learned how to um, how to be a, a a guide for your children and a mentor for your children and a father for your children. Um, I, I learned these things, yes, through conversation, but more so through observation. My father always carried himself in a certain way that um that seemed honorable and that was honorable. And so, yeah, he was my role model when it came to that. And this is what you gauge more when you were in your teen years that you saw. You saw how he put on his tie, put on his yeah. his slacks and everything. So you became more perspicacious when you were a teenager of your father or was yeah. that? Okay, cool. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, and I grew up, I was one of the few people in my circle that had an active and engaged father. Mm. And so every day was sort of a lesson. You know, I, I my, my friend group, my close friend groups, we all had two-parent households. But the more I expanded outside my friend groups, I realized like, oh, your father isn't here or or it was almost like a rarity. And so to have a black father close in the house, you know, I had to learn. And, and I understood how important it was at that time because I could look around at some of the brothers, you know, who I went to school with whose fathers died or, or whose, you know, whose families are split apart or things like that. And, and I could really look like, yo, my father, my father is not perfect, but he's purposeful. And so I was really able to see that the purpose of him being a father and I understand it more now, but I could definitely see it back then. Yes. And I think that's something that particularly in the black community is that one thing that when you see that father who's engaged for some reason, your friends attach themselves to that. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. They want to be around them or anything. Did you have that from the friends that, as you said, they had mostly two parent homes, but did you have those friends who saw your pops and was like, yo, let me go and get Mr. Whitfield. Let me see what's going on. Can I pick his brain on things? Did you have those? Yeah, I absolutely did. You know, in, in playing sports and things like that and just, um, and, and, being around other males who did not have fathers, you know, some of my friends would definitely pick my father's brain. And my, and my, and my, and my friends who had fathers, you know, they also picked his brain too. Um, that's part of what, one of our dynamics. You know, I was fortunate to grow up in a friend space in which I had multiple sets of parents. Um, so of course I had my mom and dad, but my friends' parents were also mom and dad and so forth. And so we were all, we all were sort of raised by this community collective, which was not the norm. Because as I mentioned, outside my friend groups, they rarely had outside my close friend groups, a lot of my friends did not have fathers. And so um, you know, I, I definitely saw it when going to like, you know, 
team events or sporting events or even the look of, hey, my dad's about to pick me up. Do you need a ride? You know, asking a friend that and, and that look of you have a dad and he's willing to pick you up and, and sitting in the car and just understanding the vibe that this, you know, for them, this is an experience. For me, this is a ride. For them, this is an experience where my dad would take us and go get some food after the game or whatever it may be. This is more to them than what it is to me. This is the norm. This is not the norm for them. Experiencing that for myself. Yeah, I know what it's like when you're in that space where it's like, wait, y'all don't have this or or. I'm looking like, wait, your dad does that? I never seen that before. So yeah, I, I, I definitely get you on that one. And you had said that your you mentioned your grandfather and you had mentioned with your father that the two of them, they had this way where everything was internalized. Connecting this with you, Aaron, as a young adult now, did you find that you had those same exact traits that your grandfather and father had? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think that's part of... Um that's part of the family tree and i think it wasn't di- it wasn't discussed you know a lot of a lot of what's in the family tree um the good the good roots are discussed the good leaves are discussed but some of the bad ones aren't and so and i find this you know especially within like black families we sweep a lot of things under the rug or we have very strong people in the family that overcompensate for the lack of others and so we don't discuss the lack. We just we we are used to to the performance of people who are really um, trying to make up for for the others' lacks. Especially, you know, I, I find that especially with men. And so, yeah, you know, I, I definitely do think I have some of those traits um, flowing within me, and I'm more conscious of them now than what I was back then. I didn't have a, a, a great relationship with my grandfather, partly in due to his relationship with my father. My grandfather died maybe about three years ago and we lived maybe 15 minutes away from one another. We didn't see each other. Really? Uh, yeah, there was, there was uh, for, for being the patriarch of the family, he had his own family. He had another family. And so this, so there was a wealth of information. So much so, I mean, to be, you know, let's go ahead and, you know, say it out. When my grandfather died, um, they asked me, do I want anything from his house? Do I want like, you know, necklaces? Do I want, you know, his, you know, any type of shirts? I, I didn't have anything to want because I didn't have a relationship. I'm not going to pillage somebody who I don't know. Exactly. I agree with you. And so, and, and, and at his funeral, I didn't know what to say. I felt sad for my grandfather. I loved him, but I felt sad for my aunts and for my father who were losing a parent. That That's where my sadness was. I, I didn't feel a, a, a void of, man, grandfather's not there, papa's not there. But the hurt that I felt was for my father and for my aunts and uncles, understanding that even though he was in and out the house more out than in, he's still their father. And so it, it was a very interesting sort of you know perspective being there at that funeral. So as I sit here and talk about my grandfather, and, and I'm not I'm not disparaging his name. And, and, and he was still a man who had faults, who had um, who had trauma. He also did some great things, too. And I think he did the best that he could with what he had. And so in that way, I can, you know, I can still honor and still love that man. And that's a good thing. I, I think that's something that when we don't understand of those of of our ancestry, when we don't understand what they what they did. And what things was going on we, we all say Oh man that's so messed up How they were But we don't understand Like yo You don't know the trauma That they went through Particularly around With your grandfather's generation 
where mm-hmm. they were the great paragon. I'm, I'm assuming that your grandfather was in the silent era of the 30s, the 30s, 40s yes. babies. Yeah. So, yeah, there was no such thing as you open your mouth about anything. Whatever you saw, you saw and just move on with it. So, Aaron, in, in your young adult years, here it is. You're, you're still trying to navigate through life. Did you have those moments where you still tap your father like yo i need some advice on this because this world that as you said you know learning from the rodney king beating that the world was not as innocent as you thought did you tap your father like that i need some advice on this because i thought i was smelling myself but yeah not too much you know it's interesting you know when i think about my teen years um you know i did learn through him I, i learned from him as i mentioned through observation and conversation but also i was growing as a man and Part of I think part of sort of that male dynamic is um, you do smell yourself. You do um, life almost sometimes will isolate you as you grow. And so in those teen years, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, it's it's he was there. But our dynamic was not the same because we're two, you know, one young man in the house with another my brother's older than me so you know we got three men in the house and so there can be some contention there could be some conflict there could be some energy but also we're all just sort of growing and and as we're growing we're separating and embarking upon our own independence and so yeah there were definitely times where i would tap into my dad um but i think during this time i was also trying to remember and, and trying to use what I've already learned. It's almost like put it, putting it into play the words that I had when I was practicing. When I was, you know, when, when, when dad was Superman to me as a child where he could do no wrong, now I can, you know, I, I, I could see him more as Clark Kent. Mm. It seems you no longer saw him as Superman, but now Clark Kent. What was your mindset did it shift towards him now? Was the, What was the dichotomy like between you two at that point? I think that um, when I saw him more as, as Clark Kent, I saw it as a weakness more so than as a strength. And I think it almost becomes like the two lions or the two, you know, the two um, name an animal, you know, elephant. living in the same torch, elephants. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I'm the young buck and he's the old buck. And so we're going to butt heads. Right. And there were times where we, where we most, where we definitely butt heads because I'm on a fast track. He's on a slow track and we weren't on the same path. And so I think, I, I believe I saw it as a, as a weakness during this time, which is during those teen years where I was, I was clearly seeking independence and, and I was making decisions some good, some bad, but I was living my life more so than consulting with him about, hey, I need to make this move or, you know, things like that. You know, I, I was really trying to create my own existence. So, Aaron, as you have scuttled through your, your young adult years and mistakes was made and experiences were had. Yeah. You meet this beautiful lady some yeah. way, somehow. Y'all date. I don't know. I fell asleep in biology class and human anatomy. I think it happens immaculately. But she told you, Aaron, I'm pregnant. What went through your head when you first heard that in your life? When I first heard um, and found out that my wife was pregnant, you know, and this was uh, a lot of emotions. Elation. I was elated. You know, I I was happy. Um, I was overjoyed. I I was um, 
I was all these things and yet there was fear. Fear of not being able, not being able to provide for, for three people, myself included. With having a child, I think what I what I realized at that time was I felt like my my tool belt was empty. I was empty almost on life experiences. I was empty on wisdom. Like I didn't have as many tools as what I wanted during that time. And so I felt my fear was that I was I wasn't as prepared as I should have been as a father. And and I lacked faith in who I was as a man and who I was as a father, as a husband, and all those things were heightened because of the pressure of actually having to be a provider. Because if if it fails, it's on the man. You know what I'm saying? If if this, you know, I'm supposed to be the the head of household, you know, the foundation, the protector. And yet when I was looking at my at my mental tool belt, I was like, man, I'm fresh out of college. This job isn't all that great. I'm new at marriage. Like like there was a lot going on. And so although I was definitely excited with that excitement, much like being on a roller coaster, much with that excitement is also that drop and that fear of what's coming around the corner and at what pace. And, and, and am I going going to be able to handle um, that next turn? And did you fight with that? Was that like some high exa- anxiety you were dealing with? Oh, gosh, it was high anxiety. It was um, being up late. Try, you know, trying to make moves happen. You talked about some you know, relationships occurring organically. Um, and I believe in that too. But sometimes too, you know, we try to make things happen. Like I'm going to work to find a job. I'm going to work to get this. I'm going to, and all that work is mental exhaustion and it leaves you depleted. And I'm trying to work the magic of making something happen. But really I was burnt out. I was trying to live up to a standard of self that was unattainable. Was this the standard you had, or this is just a societal standard that you you met, or a I combination of both? I think it's a combination of both, of wanting to be the man instead of. But I didn't understand I was already the man. Mm. I was trying to be something that I be something that didn't fit, as opposed to where who I already was. And so I was trying to make this work, trying to, I want more. I want us to have money. I want us to have this house. I want us to have this, this picture perfect sort of existence. I'm going to work to make it happen. And I was frustrated because I couldn't work it. I couldn't work it. I was told that hard work pays off. That hard work burnt me out. Yes, sir. Yeah, that was just, it was a very interesting time. Aaron, as you had, as you and your wife were pregnant, your first child at this time, you said, a time that you knew something was wrong. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, at this time, I was uh, heavily involved in um, in the church that I attended, and I was a, a minister in. Um, and I mean, our church family was our family. You know, our, we went to ch- we went to college with our church family. Like we were all so young, they were like my brothers and sisters. So it was nothing for us to be together on the weekend or the neighborhood cleanup or getting some food or whatever it may be. Um, but at this at this time, we were doing a church and neighborhood cleanup. Um, and my wife was pregnant um, and, and my mom uh, was even coming down to help with the cleanup. And um, and she was bringing my wife like some ginger ale to make her stomach. You know, when you're pregnant, you have uh, morning sickness, stuff like that. And so um, as we're at the cleanup, my wife starts bleeding. And, you know, <laughs> that's a sign of, of having a miscarriage. And, and I remember being at the church and seeing my wife's face, the joy that was there this morning, gone. Talk about life hitting. I'm like, what can I do? What can I do? The hospital was about 20 minutes away and I'm driving there. She's crying. And and I just, 
I remember like it's it's funny. It's not funny, but it it's but it is funny what you remember in those moments. And and I'm sitting there in the car as we're driving, and um and I remember clearly looking over at her and, and, and thinking like it's it's ironic. The very thing that signifies life and blood is also the same thing that could also signify death. Wow. What a what a what a thought to have. Right. Right. As you're driving uh-huh. to the hospital, we get to the hospital with uh, a couple of my um, friends uh, who we're very close to. And, um, you know, we're waiting in the waiting room. She's crying. I'm praying and asking God, like, what is the meaning of all this? Mm. What is the meaning of all this? Like, like, this isn't what I drew up. You know what I'm saying? This wasn't the game plan. This isn't what this isn't what I agreed to in this hospital with my wife and our child dying. And um, and as I'm praying, and this is a crazy story, so I'm gonna give y'all a disclaimer before, but I felt like God was speaking to me, and um, and one of the things that God spoke to me was I, I remember I looked over, I turned to the left, and I saw this gentleman that was sitting in a um in a wheelchair, and, and God said, "Yo, go pray for that man over there." And yo, and I'm in my feelings, y'all. I'm in my feelings. I'm like, I'm not going to go pray for this man over there. I need the prayer. Yo, <laughs> yo, I need the prayer. My yeah. baby needs the prayer. My wife mm-hmm. needs a prayer. Yo, they'll get my prayers today. I kept feeling the press. Go pray for this man over there. Go pray for this man. I, I swear to y'all. I swear. I, I, and, I, and I mean this. I said, God, if you want me to go pray for that man over there, tell him to get up. At that moment, I said that, y'all, no joke, no joke. I know people don't believe this. No joke. He got up out of his wheelchair and started like using his wheelchair to, to walk over to me. He walks over to me and um, and I tell him like, yo, bro, I, I, I'm here to pray for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, I need to pray for you. So my baby's dying, but, you know, I just feel like I need to pray for you. I prayed for him and gave him a couple words I felt were from God about his life. He started breaking down, crying, like boo-hooing. Like he's a big dude with all these tattoos. Like he was a big dude, the type of dude who you wouldn't expect to cry. He's that dude, but he was bawling his eyes out. Um, and he rolled, when I was done, he rolled back over to um, to where he was sitting. And his mom came over and said, who's the priest that prayed for my son? And I told her, I was like, yo, I'm no priest. You know, I'm here because my baby's dying. Like we're, we're you know, we're, we're going through something right now. We're going through something. She said, you have no idea what you told him. This was true. This was true. This was true. And, um, and you know, and I told her, you know, you know, since like, thanks, you know, but I, I kept him moving. And as I sat down, I felt God, the words that I received were, you have to find purpose in your pain. You have to find purpose in your pain. And, and praying for that gentleman on that day was part of my purpose even in the midst of pain that I was going through, my wife was going through, and my baby was going through. The next day we're at church and um and you know the church is praying for you know for the child and and there was a the doctor said there was a there's a chance that the that the child will make it and that um and that you know and that this was just an you know something that happens and you know the church is believing and praying you know we're, we're believing for a miracle the baby's going to live and and all these things and i remember being in the front of the church as they're praying for us and saying to myself as my wife is crying and things like that like the baby's not going to live we can stop all this praying the baby's going to die the baby's going to die and it was another one of those moments like what were you like who thinks about that i knew it to be true i couldn't shed a tear i was so heartbroken and and people say you know it's only a miscarriage people miscarry all the time it's it's a loss it's a loss of life yep 
and you feel it, even though you don't get to hold it. And um, and as a father, I felt it, but I didn't know how to express it. And um, and, and it, I mean, it broke my heart. It broke her heart, too. Yes. But it broke it broke my heart. It certainly did. This potential life is lost. Did you go to your father on this? You know, I, I think I don't recall because I was lost. Mm. You know, I, I, I was in a place of I wasn't ready to talk about it. I wanted the attention to be on my on my wife right. and her grieving. You know, I, I felt like my grieving was second or third place to her grieving because it, it, it was in her body. You know, she was carrying. And so I, I don't believe at that. I, I can pretty much say I did not go to my father or really much of anybody about it because people don't really talk about miscarriages. Correct. We don't talk about miscarriages as much because the baby, you know, for, for so many other things. But but I, I internalized it. And, um, and in doing so, it stayed with me for five, six, seven years. All because during that time, too, we were going through a lot, a lot of transitions, um, you know, during that time that were, that were to come up in the upcoming years. And but that pain, I didn't address the, the loss of my of my child, the miscarriage to maybe like five, six, seven, eight, you know, I would say seven years later. And it hurt. Right. It hurt. Yo, Aaron, you had another miscarriage after that, right? What yes. Was, so as and I spoke with a guest before who dealt with something like that. And as you know, they was like, hey, look, I just want to be able to start and try this thing again so we can just get another opportunity at this. But here it is. You do the same. And mm-hmm. then it's like the same cycle now. This is not looking good. Aaron, yeah. as a father and as a man, where is your head at this point? My heart's dealing with a whole lot of anger. My head is dealing with a whole lot of um, stress and you know, in visualizations of uh, of despair, you know, during the time of this second, um, we went through like a three year storm in which we had a miscarriage with the first child, birth of my son, uh, miscarriage, um, birth of my daughter. Uh, we were kicked out of the church that we went to. Uh, my sister-in-law died. who was like a sister to me. She died um, at the age of 28. My grandmother died. My um, my wife lost her job. I lost my job. We were broken financially. We were broken spiritually. We were broken emotionally. So all these things are going on in my head, and I'm trying to make sense of it in my mind. Like, how did this happen? My existence that was so clean. It was so clean. For the first almost 23 years of my life, now all of a sudden I'm living hell. Like this is this is my it, it felt like hell to me. And, and and every step that I made it seemed like I couldn't get, I couldn't pick up any traction. I remember praying for God when I was going through this this time of loss. And I was praying, and I'm like, God, if I could just get one win. I didn't want three. Let me get one win so I can make a better, just one. I needed just just one because I was experiencing so much loss. Yeah. And loss that I could not control and some loss that I could control. I was self-sabotaging. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as men, as men do a lot, like like I, I was self-sabotaging to push my family away. I felt like I was cursed. <laughs> Who gets out of church? Who gets kicked out of church? You know, like, like who does that? Yeah, it happened to me. 
why why is all this happening within this time frame? I felt like I was cursed. So I was like, I just want y'all away from me any way possible. And while you're doing that, the strain that it has in your marriage. The strain is, is unbelievable and it's um and it's and it's almost a miracle that was that we're still here, married. Um, you know, at, at this time because you know, with that, with losing with losing everything, I was almost ready to set fire. But losing enough, I was almost ready to set fire to everything. Like I, w- I was almost ready. I-, I remember, you know, driving down when I was I, when I was broke, broke. I wasn't even like when I was broke. Driving down the road, I peered off on the side of the road and I saw some trees. and And the thought that came to my mind was, "Yo, if I drive this tree, if I drive into these trees, uh, my wife would get five hundred thousand for I think it's like five or six hundred thousand for our life insurance because I'm worth I'm worth more dead than what I am alive. I can't find a job. That's almost the bare minimum of being a man. Right. Bring home a paycheck. Right. Yep. Can't bring home a paycheck. I haven't done so in about a year. Mm. This isn't what she signed up for. This isn't what I wanted her to sign up for. This isn't what this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what my kids signed up for. So let me go ahead and try to sign off. Ooh. And I didn't do it, of course, since I'm here. But that's it's, it's a scary place not being. Um, it's a scary place living, but being too afraid to die. Yeah. Yep. You know, it, it's it's it, it was just, it, I was just in a time. Bill collectors calling me uh, that our car got repossessed. Hearing my wife cry, you know, with our kids at home as our car got repossessed, and and, and asking people for money, and 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 just like I'm looking like a complete failure as a husband, as a man, as a father, as a person, as a. But we think of it as a man first. We don't even notice that. Like anytime we're not at that space where we think we we should be. We don't think as a husband, as a father, anything, or brother, anything. We think first, I'm a failure as a man. Of course, a lot of women don't get that. They're like, oh, well, all you got to do. No, 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 no. There's no all you have to do. Because with us as men, we get a bigger scrutinization. We get a bigger everything that comes down on us. Tons of bricks to let us know like, yo, you didn't. Do blah 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 And then of course As you said The self-sabotage We have our biggest Harshest critic Ourselves And we will tear Ourselves down To To the point Where you're like Maybe it's better off If I'm not here on this earth And and there's not as much Support for men Like like, And that's where You know when people say Oh you know You hit rock bottom You you know I've realized I have several rock bottoms You know when people say It can't get any worse Give me a couple minutes And I'll make it worse (laughs) <laughs> like 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 because there aren't as many parachutes and especially as black men you know if, if we're falling off the building there aren't as many people to catch us and and it shows but we got a lot and of so arrows we, coming at us though yo you either explode or implode and both are ugly and um and that you know i call those years my dark years because i don't i remember them but i don't necessarily remember everything probably thank god for it I wasn't in counseling. I couldn't afford it. Let's go back to that too. I couldn't afford counseling. Not that I necessarily believed in it, but I couldn't afford it. But what I did, I'm as I told y'all, I'm a hip hop baby. I'm an '80s baby, hip hop head. Um, I made an, an instrumental uh, uh, album 
that I didn't know was an instrumental album when I was making it. I was just really making it for almost therapeutic reasons. And um, I made these beats that, that are so dark, but that tell the story of my dark years. And I listened to them years later. I was like, ooh, this is so good, but ooh, this is so dark. And um, and so that's how I generally remember my dark years through those beats, because um, I just didn't have the words to vocalize how I felt, but listening to those songs, I could feel the emotions. Aaron, so fast forward some. After mm-hmm. going through this dark period that you went through with your wife, get it again that you're pregnant. I'm about to pop. This baby's about to come. Yeah. Get to the hospital and she pushed, 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 and here it is. Finally, the bread is out the oven. Ten mm-hmm. fingers, ten toes. Yes. Put this little life in your hands. How does it feel to be dad officially for the first time? Oh, amazing. Uh amazing, but yet it's still that 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 um that stress of performance. I have to do this, you know, the checklist of things I have to do and things I have to get ready and things that, you know, that everybody needs. And so it was beautiful holding my son. It was beautiful. Like, oh, my gosh, I have a son. Not a mini me. I didn't want a mini me, but I have a son. Wonderful. And the pressures of, man, I want him to be a greater person than what his father is. And I want to provide for him in ways in ways that I don't have right now. And so there was definitely a, a, a pressure to perform, a pressure to do, a pressure it, it, which once again led, led to burnout. Um, of not enjoying fatherhood, you know? Like not enjoying, it's hard to enjoy fatherhood when you're broke. Mm. You know, like, 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 like it's cool taking the pictures and everybody say that's a cute baby and the baby is cute and the baby's the, the issue is not the baby. The issue is with the man and and um, and seeing this beautiful, wonderful, smart, vibrant body and questioning like we just got through today. We got to go through this whole thing again tomorrow. Like it's not cute being broke and and and. And um, and just having so many questions around you. So it was a learning experience. You know, I, I was the type of father who would wake up with my children, make the bottles, feed them in the middle of the night, uh, you know, with my son and, and later on my daughter changing diapers. Uh, I was a father who was going out with a double stroller and taking the kids out. Yo, I knew how to swaddle a baby. I could swaddle a baby to this day. I could rock a baby to sleep. Um, you know, I I was that father because I didn't see a whole lot of men growing up changing diapers. I didn't see a whole lot of men talking about waking up and, you know, and getting the formula, making sure it's not too hot and, and you know what I'm saying, and, and cleaning off the, 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 the nipples for the, uh, you know, like, like I was that dude. I was that dude. I took pride. I will say I took pride in being that guy, even when I was broken, even when I was broken, because I understood that was bonding time for me and my children. Those walks, walking the mall when we didn't have money, but we could just walk together with that baby up against my chest. He's hearing my heartbeat and he's getting he's getting a picture of, of, of his father. I, you know, I could look back now and say, I did a good job. I did a good job. Back then, I would say, I gotta do more, I gotta do more. The performance aspect. But I gave everything I had to raising in those early stages, my son and later on my daughter. Um, because I wanted to be involved. So, Aaron, you get it again. I'm pregnant. You pop out another one. Yeah. Baby girl. Aaron, mm-hmm. 
does the pressure come off or is the pressure still there? Yo, the pressure's still there because the bills went up. <laughs> there's more pressure, you know, there, there's more pressure. Um, and, and the pressure's still there. And, and, and really what it was, so the pressure, the, the pressure was still there, but so was depression. Why so? And because I didn't deal, I didn't deal with the issue. I didn't deal with the hurt, the trauma of the loss of the past three to four years and that storm in my life. I didn't deal with it. I suppressed it. And and I remember being in church and sitting in church and um and this guy was talking about he was talking about like a black storm over his life, he, like a black cloud over his life. And he was like, and it went on for years and, and I was depressed. And I remember thinking like, huh, that sounds like a lot of what I'm going through. And I have two children with me. And so, you know, my daughter, beautiful, holding 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 my daughter and just experiencing experiencing my daughter and understanding that I now have a, a, a little girl and I'm going to try to give her everything. Same thing for my son, but I don't have everything to give right now. So at this stage and, you know, in age, um, I was still going through a storm of my life in which things still weren't great. I was still broke bill collectors were still calling we were still check to check the car wasn't repo but the car may not have much gas like like things like we were trying to patch things together you know rob peter to pay paul yo we had to rob all all the disciples (laughs) (laughs) everybody was getting their hands up because we we just didn't have it and it wasn't it wasn't the existence that i thought we would have in those late 20s early 30s I expected more from myself. I felt like my wife was performing. I felt like she was producing. And, and I was like, I'm what, what am I not doing? What am I not doing? And I got these children with me and everybody under my umbrella, like in, in their holes in my umbrella. So it was a, it was an interesting time. I, my children, of course, were wonderful, beautiful. But I was in a place. I was in a place in a space that um that just wasn't healthy. Interesting. Though the birth of your second child, still you had to face this depression. At one point now, did Aaron realize I got to get out from this because this is not healthy for myself first. Definitely not healthy for my family. You know, it, it was it was really a point um, about about seven years ago. Um, seven years ago, coming up maybe in July or uh, July or August, where. I, I don't know how I ended up in, in the place and space of just um, of feeling like I was just isolated. Like I was just, I was just tired. That's what I probably just ran myself tired. Strong uh, believer in counseling, but you know, I was at a place where I was like, I just need, I need something. Maybe it will work. Maybe it'll work. I don't believe in it. I, why, why do I need to sit down and tell somebody about my problems? And I signed up for counseling just. Just to say, hey, I'm trying to work at it. You know, this is something I'm trying to better me. I signed up for it on a Saturday and I've been in it ever since. Every now it's every other Saturday. But in it for six straight years, every Saturday at nine o'clock in the morning, Aaron was in counseling and I didn't see it as such. I, I almost saw it as something. Yo, let me do two months. Maybe let me get some things off my chest. But I found that I needed 
as someone who people come to for their problems and want to talk about the problems, someone who tries to be a, a solution to people, um, not just my my children, not just my family, but those who, who I'm also father to in the community. I need someone to help me find solutions for for me. I need someone to listen to me. I need I need a space in a place in which I feel I can voice who I am authentically and not be judged. You know, and so counseling brought that for me. And so, um, you know, if you haven't tried counseling, you know, definitely, definitely check it out. Um, a lot of counseling is about finding a good fit. Try it and, and don't give up on yourself. It's definitely been a, a blessing and very beneficial in my life. Yes. And as we see now, as we've seen for the past, what, six years now, no longer is therapy a dark stigma in the black community now it's it's very very much appreciated and pushed for within the black community Aaron you stated that you are now a father to others you started going into being a mentor to others particularly of a certain group expound on that yeah, you know, I've, I've always been involved in like uh, community centers and things like that. Like even at an early age, I was volunteering and, you know, working at community centers and stuff uh, because I, I enjoy being a mentor. Um, and then going into my 30s, um, I, I got a job at a uh, local library filled with predominantly like East and West African kids. Uh, and then I was my job was to create and run the academic center. Um, and for those who know me, your math is not my strong point, neither is science. And um, but that's what they wanted me to uh, to do for the kids. And I quickly realized <laughs> that I cannot do that for these children. I quickly realized that the assignment that that I um, that was before me, I could not do. But I remember walking in on the first day and seeing all these beautiful like brown and and black faces and um, and realizing that it was my purpose, not my job position, but my purpose was to build a was to build community within that space. I can't help people with their calculus. That's not <laughs> what I'm gonna do. But I can help you solve some life problems. And, and and I created that space and I did that for eight years and, and um the more and more I look back at that eight years of spending five days a week with a group of people is life-changing you get to see I, I got to see kids go from elementary school to high school to college i got to see you know kids go from high school to graduation to marriage like like it's a, it's an interesting time to be around for people for eight consistent years basically watch them week. grow up i watched them grow up and and i watched them i watched them evolve into my children you know, and, and with with some of the African cultures, when I walked in, uh, you know, first couple of days on the job, they will call me uncle um, as a sign of respect for who I was within their within their community. Even though I was new, they called me uncle out, out of respect and or Mr. Aaron um, out of respect. And they saw me as a father and as an uncle, even even before I saw myself as a father and uncle in their lives. And so if anything, their vision of me, they saw before I did. I was late to the party. But over the course of this time of this eight years, like the relationships, the community that we built, the family that we built is it still exists to this day. We're still in communication with one another. And it was just one of those life changing. It's one of those life changing situations that it came at the right time in my life because these kids saw something 
this, these kids in the community saw something in me that I did not see. They pulled the greatness out of me. They pulled, they saw the greatness and they made me confront the greatness and acknowledge it and walk in it. And uh, yo, I'm here, I'm here today, uh, you know, because of them. Aaron, you s- said one point, we'll call you, your former mentees, they will call you and ask you a specific question. They will call and ask me, what is something that you see in me that I don't see for myself? And it's interesting because that same logic is what they gave to me without truly knowing. They saw something in me that I did not see in myself. And and yet they call me, ask me the same question. And it's such an endearing question um, because a lot of these kids are from different backgrounds, from different countries, first generation American, or, you know, in some cases, two years removed from um, from uh, refugee camps. Uh, different cultures, different uh, religious backgrounds. Uh, a couple in particular. Um, I'm I'm a Christian, uh, you know, a Christian man, and and yet my students who are Muslim, uh, you know, and will call me and ask me that question because they view me as their father. They view me as an uncle, and they trust what I am going to say based upon what I see in them. And so, you know, with instances like that. Those are the type of situations that help me see once again who I truly am, not what I project to be. You know, they 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 ask me that question because they trust wholeheartedly in the man that I am. And um, and I tell them all the time, like, I am honored to be in their lives like they are. They're amazing. They're, they're simply amazing. The stories out of that place, man, just just incredible. Uncle Aaron, why do you? Keep your towel in fatherhood. I keep my towel in fatherhood because I want a younger generation of fathers, people who aren't fathers, students who aren't fathers, young men who aren't fathers, who may not have children or who may have children, uh, to see that this fatherhood role is not perfect, but there's so much purpose within fatherhood. You don't have to have natural born children be a father. The way people look at you, the way you carry yourself, the way you hold yourself, the way you see um, greatness to other people, the way you invest in other people, that's what makes you a father. My talents in this fatherhood, in this fatherhood game, because we need fathers. That's it. We need fathers. Fathers are so vital to our communities, uh, to our young men and women, uh, to our to our elderly to just everybody in the community like like your position as a father combine that with your purpose as a man you know it's life-changing and so the more that i could talk about fatherhood the more that i can you know educate you know the the generation behind me or be a bridge between these generations those older than me and those younger than me the more that i can do that and show them the fatherhood is is purposeful uh the more that i could do that you know i think the better that our communities will be Yes. And so, um, I, you know, I'm glad I didn't throw in the towel. Uh, I'm still fighting as a father. I'm still fighting, but I'm now swinging punches as opposed to just getting pummeled down by life. Well, folks, there you have it. You heard it from this man himself, what he had to go through. And brother, I just say thank you so much for just taking this time out to vibe with me. And I, and There were so many gems that this man dropped. If you didn't pick them up, please let me ask you to do a good favor. 
But those are my 90s and 80s babies. Rewind. Just rewind and just play it again. Just keep it on repeat and just (laughs) do it again. Just play it again so you can hear what he had to say. So, with that being said, Mr. Whitfield, congratulations. You have survived Boogie's Gym. And this spar session is officially over. You already heard what he had to go through. He went through some rough stuff. And a lot of you fathers have gone through that. And men have gone through that too. It doesn't have to be a father to understand what men go through. But you don't have to do this alone. As he had to realize he doesn't have to do this alone. I'm going to put all of Aaron's description of his website, his podcast, all that stuff in the description box. Make sure you go ahead and check him out. I know I'm going to definitely check out some more of his stuff so you get a chance to do it too. And please go ahead and shoot him a message. Just say, man, brother, thank you for just being real and raw. And that's what he did here for you. Thank you so much for vibing with us and listening to this series of the Why I Kept My Towel Series Father's Day Edition. Like I always tell you, wipe the blood, wipe the sweat, wipe the tears. But whatever you do, don't throw me your towel. This is your man, Aunt Boogie. I will check you when I check you. I will see you when I see you. Happy Father's Day pre Post and present Father's Day to all my fathers out there. And yo, I'll check you when I check you. As I said, I'll see you when I see you. We are out of here. Later. Later.